Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us uh, for today's show. we got a lot to talk about, so I want to get right to the panel. Um, we've got a reconstituted version of the A-Team on the show today. For those of you who have been uh, listeners to this show for a very long time, uh, you know that we had uh, uh, everybody who's on the show today, plus a couple of other panelists who all who their names all started with A, and they became known as the A-Team. Well, they're back with us today. One of them is not Tamar Hallerman, however, who is my Tuesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's a senior reporter there, as you know. Tamar, thank you for uh, being with us today. Really wish my first name started with A, but we can make it work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, here we go. We are joined in addition to Tamar uh, by Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University. Amy, uh, I think you told us right before the show, you've only got a few more days of class and then you're out for the holiday break. Indeed, we're, we're, we're almost done. And so therefore I can try to get done all of the other things that I should have been getting done while I was teaching classes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assume the same goes for uh, Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of pre-law at Morehouse College. I think you're done after today, Adrian. We are, at least with the classes, you know, we'll have exams and um, move forward into the next semester. Well, thank you for joining us today. And Audrey Haynes is back with us from the University of Georgia, teaches political science at the university and is the director of the Applied Politics program there, uh, which uh, trains students uh, for careers in politics. How, how are you, Audrey? Are you getting set for your holiday? I am. I'm so getting set for my holiday. Um, but first, I have to grade like 350 papers. Oh, God. <laughs> that sounds like great fun. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, let's start by just taking a quick look tomorrow at early voting numbers. We know that yesterday was the first day of statewide early voting. Uh, there's only five days of statewide early voting on the calendar because of the uh, compacted period between the general election and the runoff, just a four-week period. Uh, but we know that more than 300,000 people showed up at polling places uh, yesterday, setting a new record tomorrow. Shattering records for single-day in-person voting. And my colleague Mark Nisi had a great chart in his story this morning that kind of showed. And, and the closest we, we came was back in 2016. There was 252,000 in, in one day. This is 301,000. So a uh, huge huge uh, day for early voting. Um, it seems like in Metro Atlanta, lots of folks were waiting 30 minutes, an hour to, to vote even longer. I wonder if that will go down as the, the week goes on. Uh, but a huge moment for these campaigns that are working so hard to turn their folks back out. 
Um, you know, uh, Audrey, um, looking at the early voting demographics is like reading tea leaves in some way. We, we think it may give us a glimpse of what's happening out there on the ground, but we don't know for sure. But we do know, Audrey, that typically it's Democrats that cast ballots early. Um, and we also know that because Republicans spent so much time, including the Walker campaign and the state party, fighting that Saturday early voting uh, date this past weekend, they may not have spent as much time just whipping up their voters to get out and cast ballots. Audrey? Right, because, you know, of those um, counties that are doing uh, the balloting early, allowing for um, early voting on Saturdays, uh, out of those 22, a lot of them are what are considered to be areas that are bluer, that have more Democrats in them, and they are turning out in droves. I've had students sending me pictures, and I just want to note one thing, that, you know, the Saturday early voting helped a lot of students who go out of state. I mean, a lot of them were saying, gosh, this is great. I can vote before I have to leave town. Um, and then looking at the demographics, I was looking at the um, some of the, the interesting ones last night, and it's very clear that there are more women voting, and the percentage of um, of uh, black voters is extremely high for this early voting, and it feels like sort of like a quiet assertion of, you know, this feeling. My gut is telling me that a lot of this are Warnock supporters right now as opposed to Walker supporters. Now, they may turn well, out Adrian, on day of, so we'll see. Adrian, uh, Amy, uh, let me let me uh, pick up on what Audrey just said to us. So, Adrian, uh, the African-American vote so far, 40 percent of the people who have turned out early compared to 47 percent of white voters um, now, those numbers are going to change, and the percentages of African-American votes will be reduced because they don't represent that big a portion of the population. But it may reinforce what Audrey is saying about Warnock voters being pretty animated at this stage of the election. Are, um, in my area, I can see the polls pretty easily every day, and the line has been wrapped around the building and down the street since Saturday morning. Um, I also find it really ironic, <laughs> you know, all of this sort of racist history that we've got, um, you know, to remind people that they need to get out and vote, that there is the potential for their vote to be suppressed. And I think we're seeing that um, in this round, um, this argument about whether or not there was going to be Saturday voting because the time for the election has moved um, as a result of SB 202, which I'm assuming legislators know that when they pass SB 202, they understand that students, for example, are going to be out of town. They understand that it's Robert E. Lee Day, which I know we discreetly call the state holiday, uh, but that's just unbelievable. And I don't know that people really understand um, that that is the holiday we were talking about in terms of the dispute over early voting. But I think that it you know, maybe it just spiritually animates them. Um, I was also alarmed, too, that um, Brad Raffensperger wanted to appeal the decision, um, you know, when in his initial statement saying that there would be Saturday voting, he seemed like uh, this would be something that he would support. You know, less voting days, particularly for the weekend, mean, you know, less access for voters. So, Adrian, I think I might, um, just from my perspective, tweak your remark just a little bit 
it did seem clear that um, Republicans, especially when they uh, when the uh, uh, state Republican Party, after an appeals court had said Saturday voting is fine, uh, went all the way to the state Supreme Court, um, along with national Republican organizations to challenge that Saturday vote. It did seem clear that they felt Saturday voting would uh, slow down Democratic votes in general, certainly a big share of that African-American votes, but Democratic votes in general. Would you agree with that, Adrian? I would. Um, and, you know, it seems pretty smart to me. Uh, but I, you know, I'm still glad that people were able to get out on Saturday. And it's really, you know, heartening to see the healthy lines outside and not just by where I live, but um Yesterday, I was in Southwest, and like those polling places were packed also. So, uh, Amy, what I'll add one a demographic, and then you comment on any of this. Um, the percentage of people over 50 years old remains dominant, as it did during the general. Uh, those 50 to 65 and above have so far uh, represented more than 70% of the early voting. Again, we're reading tea leaves, but often that is a good news for Republicans. Yes, right. And we definitely see, if you actually looked at the numbers sort of yesterday before yesterday's total was added in, right, so they, they don't get added in until the next morning. Um, so what was interesting about coming out of the weekend is that actually the percentage of 18 to 29-year-olds who voted was higher than the percentage of 30 to 39 and 40 to 49. So the other thing we really saw coming out of the weekend was a much higher percentage of non-white voters. Um, in fact, the, the number of, at that point, uh, and yesterday when I looked around four o'clock, the percentage of uh, voter uh, black voters was actually uh, about 47%, right? So much higher. Um, and we also saw really high voting. It was much higher coming out of younger voters, right? And so I think getting into what Audrey was talking about, of uh, students who were able to vote before they had to go back to school, right? Those who aren't able to go vote during the work week. And so I think there is this reality that on the one hand, like, it's thrilling that we've broken this record. On the other hand, we sort of have to, to have the vote totals even get anywhere close to what they were in the general election, much less the last runoff, because there's so fewer days of voting. I don't think people sort of realize, like previously, right, the last runoff, there were three weeks of early voting and then election yep. day. We've got seven days, right, at most there's seven days of early voting and then election day. And so people really have to make a plan and get out. And so if you're listening, right, make sure everybody around you has a plan and go vote and civic engagement is really good, but it is going to show who's able to do that and who's able to get people to overcome these issues. One other point I will make that'll be interesting to see how it goes with early voting. Early voting mandates that the hours that counties have to do it are nine to five, right, which is your traditional work day. Counties can, if they want to, extend those hours to 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Again, I think it will be interesting to look once we sort of get through all of this to see which counties have done that and how that, again, affects turnout in those particular counties. Because for anyone who works 9 to 5, right, it's really difficult to go work 9 right, then to go vote 9 to 5. So the question is, do they have that ability to go vote after work? Do they have that ability to go vote before work? And how is that going to affect what we see for overall turnout? 
Um, let me just add to something that you just said about early voters. Natalie Mendenhall sent me some uh, data yesterday about this. Um, she said that um, she looked at figures that showed that in the uh, general election, those 18 to 29 uh, voted at a rate of 429,000 people. 429,000 18 to 29-year-olds voted in the general election. That is out of 1.4 million registered voters in that age range. So they were really, I mean, I think of that as vast underrepresentation um, of, of those voters. Uh -huh. um, and, and she added that about 18,000 of the 18 to 29 year olds have voted so far in the runoff. So, you know, it, it's the students on your campuses, the three of you, whose uh, votes right now become even more important if you're, if you, uh, probably if you're a Democrat who wants to see Raphael Warnock uh, reelected. Um, Tamar, let's move on and talk about how Donald Trump has once again caused a national storm of controversy uh, because of the dinner he held at Mar-a-Lago the other night with um, Kanye West uh, and uh, Nick Fuentes. Uh, Nick Fuentes is uh, the leader of a movement that is, uh, without question, racist and anti-Semitic. He's a Holocaust denier. And we know that Kanye West has, of late, uh, out of apparently nowhere, started condemning uh, uh, Jews. Talked about going DEFCON 3 on Jews. And the fact that uh, uh, Trump hosted the both of them at this dinner has uh, really uh, ratcheted up concerns about racism and anti-Semitism in the country. All that said, uh, uh, your colleague, uh, Greg Bluestein talked to uh, Governor Kemp about this, and Kemp uh, actually was quick to condemn uh, Trump for uh, this dinner, saying that racism, anti-Semitism, and denial of the Holocaust have no place in the Republican Party and are completely un- American. Uh, Tamar, start us off on this part of our conversation. Sure. I mean, this raises questions, first of all, as Donald Trump ramps up his presidential campaign, uh, how much support he's going to be able to pull from um, Jews going forward. Um, you know, there are plenty, including relatives of mine, who believe that he was very strong on Israel, and, and he was able to pull a decent minority, I think, of Jewish voters. But does this cause folks to abandon him? Uh, but more importantly for Georgia in the interim is what does this mean for Herschel Walker, who, of course, was endorsed by Donald Trump, um, who has had some support from Jewish voters, um, has, had, has held fundraisers with them. Uh, does that cause folks to sit this one out or even cross over and vote for Raphael Warnock? And as we've mentioned over and over again, since these races um, lately have been determined by a couple thousand votes, um, having any segment of the population sit it out uh, could have really dire consequences for a candidate. Amy, um, I think what Tamar just said is important. It is There is this sort of general assumption that Jewish voters tend to vote Democratic. And of course, quite often across the country, that's true. But as Tamar points out, Georgia has a significant population of Jewish mm -hmm. voters here who are Republicans, who vote Republican. And the question is how uh, they might be impacted by those comments, especially to add one more element, since um, we know that Herschel Walker so far has refused to comment on this dinner. Yes, 
and some of the issue here is that it's all about trying to get as many people as possible to turn out and not give people any reason to not turn out, right? They, they've got to work, they've got to make a plan. And this is, right, for anyone who has a bit of a concern, right, perhaps about Herschel Walker, right, this could be, right, that thing that sort of pushes them over the edge, whether it makes them just simply not turn out or to vote for Raphael Warnock. And that's really the concern. And I think that's also why we see, for example, right, there's, I mean, if, if, if you were watching any of the World Cup over the weekend, uh, you saw Brian Kemp a whole lot. You didn't see Herschel Walker, and again, that was because they know that the people that they've got to try to appeal to are those more moderate Republicans who either are on the fence about Walker or already voted for Warnock to try to bring them back into the fold. And this is sort of one more thing that could push, again, right, a particular group who is more likely to go out and vote away and either, again, push them over to the other side or keep them home. So, you know, I, I mean, Audrey, uh, <laughs> sorry. So just we're all members of the A team. Just say A, we're good. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, what, what I would add to this, too, is that, um, you know, in a general sense, the campaigns of, of Walker and then the, the potential campaign of Trump, every day it seems they get more tarnished. Every day the Republican Party itself seems to be having a great deal of trouble sort of just dealing with this odd mix, their coalition of supporters. You have this, this base that's being courted. You have a lot of their, you know, what we call the, the more regular Republicans that are sort of outside of the base and questioning. And just, again, with the Fuentes dinner, with the, um, the tax issue, with Walker, Every day there's something new, and that makes people kind of question. It creates a little uncertainty if they're not one of those diehards. So I think overall it's going to demobilize people. Now, I would argue that most people do not pay attention to the news like we do or that your listeners do. And so some of this is not getting to them because it's holiday season, and they're all looking for those bargains that don't exist right now. Um, so you know, how it will shake up, um, you know, maybe a little bit more marginal. But right now it does seem that Warnock has the momentum. And when you have that kind of momentum, it spreads. And people feel good about voting. And then they, they get their friends to go and vote. They feel purposeful. I don't know if there's that much purpose. The other thing, too, is people don't realize that in Congress right now, and Democrats are sharing this amongst themselves, that, you know, maybe – Maybe control of the Senate is is determined right now. But what they forget is that there's a power sharing argument. And this one extra senator makes a huge difference, especially when the House is controlled by Republicans. So I think that is also making people realize. And Warnock's team is doing a better job getting out there, educating people. Herschel's team seems to be doing their best, but Every day, there is something new that comes out that they have to control. 
just a side note on that, and then Adrian, I, I want to add another element to this. It, it is certainly true that if the Senate is split 50-50, there is this power-sharing arrangement as we've had for the last couple of years, which is why uh, Democrats are really even more energized uh, to get uh, Warnock in power. But, Audrey, it's not a bumper sticker kind of issue. Pretty hard yeah. to say, <laughs> oh, but we yeah. need that one extra vote, so we're not sharing power. Uh, so it, it, it does become a little bit of a problem. Um, but as long as we're well, no, let's let's complete this. And then we'll talk about something Eric Erickson mm-hmm. said about why Republicans aren't motivated. Adrian, let's not forget, while we talked about Nick Fuentes and his anti-Semitic uh, uh, behavior, uh, he is a virulent racist as well. He believes America should be a country of white Christians. Adrian. I mean, I guess this goes to my response when I looked at this, which is. You know, Trump keeps raising Kemp's profile and he keeps facilitating, um, you know, his having a good look as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, that that phone conversation, you know, facilitated a win for Kemp and absolutely for Raffensperger last year. Um, you know, today it's making Kemp look like a socially responsible, culturally responsible leader, in addition to the fact that. Um, Walker is such a dicey candidate that Kemp needs to go out in some form. Who's out there? Kemp. I'm saying, <laughs> what are you doing? I really feel like he needs to pull back on Georgia. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I understand that he's energizing his base. The former president is, but I feel like um, Kemp just keeps winning um, in the former president's game. Okay, I, I hear that. Uh, we do know that Kemp is, in fact, in his heart, very conservative. Uh, he was a signer of the heartbeat uh, abortion law, of course. He's uh, expanded gun uh, laws in the state to make it easier to carry uh, weapons. But I think you do have to say, uh, uh, Tamar, that uh, at this point, and it may grow, uh, within the Republican Party, he's become one of a small number of Republicans who have actually have been very critical of Trump for hosting this dinner. Yes, um, and it's a kind of different strategy from him. As we saw during the campaign, he was really loath to do anything to to speak about the former president at all, Um, you know, any sort of criticism. Uh, but but he's mentioned kind of building bridges with the Jewish community here in Georgia and not wanting to to alienate them. So, um, you know, he's in his second term now. He he doesn't have to be worry about reelection. He doesn't have to worry about Donald Trump. So it gives him more freedom to be able to take a stand on stuff like that. Um, and I mean, it's it's getting him attention. There was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal the other day that suggested Kemp for president in um I don't know if it was 2024 or 2028, but kind of lifting him up as as a potential leader nationally in the Republican Party. Um, I want to talk about that in a little while, actually, uh, because I think his criticism of Trump plays into whatever his next steps, he may see his next steps as being. But before we get there, uh, Amy, I just mentioned a minute ago that um, there is some concern among some who support Herschel Walker that the because the Senate is decided, yes, 51 would be better than 50, but there is no longer a fight for control of the U.S. Senate. Um, people like, here's what Eric Erickson, uh, the conservative commentator, had to say about what's happening in this runoff. 
He said, quote, there's a lack of enthusiasm about Walker as a candidate, and it's kind of like, what's the point if we're not going to win the Senate? Why bother? Why show up to vote is essentially what he's saying. There's a palpable sense of frustration with Georgia Republicans who saw their entire statewide slate win, except the guy Trump convinced to get into the race. And there's a lingering sense of frustration that anyone else would have won and Herschel's baggage weighed him down. I don't think there's much question that that part of his statement is true. I mean, he, he Walker had more than 200,000 fewer votes than Brian Kemp, and there were Republicans in down-ballot races who had even a larger more margin of votes over Walker than that. It's, uh, I mean, it's a pretty accurate assessment of, of what is going on here and the fact that even in this runoff, right, Walker is still having to do a lot of the heavy lifting of convincing even members of his own party that they should vote for him, right? Because we know that there's a significant number who already crossed the aisle and they voted for Warnock. And so he's having to do work to try to convince them that, no, 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 you don't need to sort of have those concerns. He needs to do a tremendous amount of work to try to convince uh, the libertarians Right, both to turn out and also to support him. He's got to do a tremendous amount of work to convince anyone who skipped the race the first time, right? Which, again, it's highly likely that a lot of the people who skipped that race were probably Republican voters who couldn't cross the aisle, but they also couldn't bring themselves to vote for Walker. And so, again, he's trying to convince them. And so there's a, a lot of an uphill battle there. And there's not, again, a sort of, he doesn't have an external thing that's sort of aiding him, right? An external force such as this is how we will win back the Senate and be able to stop Joe Biden, right? He can't say that. Uh, he doesn't have it for uh, sort of a lot of these other forces. And so that really does work um, against him in that sense. Okay, so Adrian, I've got to get to a break. But before I do, uh, because I, I think it's clear, I think we know that Adrian, uh, Brian Kemp would not win your vote for any office he seeks, whether it was in the past, the present, or the future. So I want to ask you about this. Um, uh, Politico today uh, put up a story in which they talked about polling, internal polling that they saw. They didn't, uh, it, it came from a pro Walker super PAC. And what the polling confirmed is that um, the most effective Republican who uh, uh, Walker could have at his side in this runoff election is Brian Kemp. Kemp's favorability among likely runoff voters is at 60%, according to the internal poll, with only a 33% unfavorable rating, whereas Trump's numbers sit at 36% favorable and 59% unfavorable. So I, I frame all that for you, but then I ask you to talk about this. Um, if Kemp is willing to go out there and criticize Donald Trump pretty openly, at the same time, he's willing to support a candidate who even Republicans say is is a guy we want just to be able to have some more power in the Senate, not because we think this is a guy who will make a great United States senator. I, I, I think I have to agree with most of those. Although I, don't, I don't necessarily need an um, advertisement of my vote. Um, I mean, I think that right now that Trump has again probably contributed to the demobilization of GOP voters, and Kemp is the person 
um, who can potentially turn some of that around if it's possible uh, for Herschel Walker. Um, but this is why I say that Trump makes the governor look good because, um, you know, the governor has a history of voter suppression, for example, or at least engaging in activities that um, are extremely likely to make it more difficult for people uh, to vote. And um, the way he came out of 2020, he looks like he is, you know, an election security advocate and guru. Um, the same thing with here. Um, you know, I hear the governor talking about business and, um, you know, we have an extremely uh, touchy racial situation in the state, especially around crime a lot and the expansion of gun laws. You know, there's never any attention to this. But this gives him the opportunity to, um, you know, express these criticisms of, of uh, the former president and look extremely good in terms of, you know, the way that he projects both to the state and to the nation. It's, Thank you. I, I, it's ironic. I, 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 was, I apologize for interrupting. And I also was not trying to out you in terms of your voting. I was speculating <laughs> on the basis of the observations you've made. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're joined today uh, by Tamar Hallerman, by Adrian Jones, by Audrey Haynes, and Amy Steigerwald. Amy Steigerwald, I don't want to let it go unsaid that you, the big soccer fan on this panel, I think you are probably like me watching the World Cup um, every day, uh, biggest match uh, in years for the Americans this afternoon. They take on Iran. If they win that match, they move through to the round of 16. And I don't know about you, Amy, but I am trying so hard. The the controversial politics surrounding this entire World Cup, the selection of Qatar as the host uh, country, the internal politics, Iran saying now they may punish the families of members of their uh, squad uh, for not singing the national anthem, for joining the protest of women in Iran. Um, all of this makes it hard, but it is still the most beautiful game, Amy, and hard not to appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 2 p.m. Eastern time is when that game will come. We need to win. We cannot even do a draw to be able to advance. Um, so we will be watching with bated breath. But you're right. It also, the flip side of it makes it, um, th there's a lot that is going into it. There, there's a lot of concerns about uh, bribery and other such things that occurred with FIFA and where the decision making is coming and other abuses, and it sort of shows on some level the reality that there's very few things that are sort of stark, sort of good, bad. A lot of times there's a lot of gray, um, that even within those things that we really like, there's uh, can be negatives, and so we've got to figure out how to how to balance that. All right. Well, we'll be watching at uh, 2 o'clock uh, this USA afternoon. Men, so right. they can catch up to the Yeah, abso absolutely. Tamar, um, 
We talked on the show yesterday about the fact that um, the AJC, your colleagues at the AJC, have been pointing out that for a good part of the last week, Herschel Walker has virtually been out of sight. He's back out on the campaign trail now, but he really went silent uh, for quite quite a while, Tamar. And, um, and there's speculation that perhaps... Perhaps his campaign realizes the less exposure he has, the better off they are because of some of the really uh, bizarre comments he is capable of making. So having said that, I want to play for you uh, some sound that uh, circulated uh, on social media the other day. Uh, Walker was talking to two people. I'm not quite sure who these people are he's talking to. But uh, a a woman, clearly a very conservative Republican woman, uh, asks him how he feels about young people who might be going out and voting for Raphael Warnock, um, about them being critical of this country, not supporting, in her words, the United States of America. And let's just listen to the way Walker responded, and then I want to bring you in on that, tomorrow. Well, first of all, they don't know that the grass is not green on the other side. That they think they're somewhere better. And if they know another place that's better than the United States of America, my thing is, why don't you go there or tell me, let me know who that is, because I can tell them right now that's not. I think our biggest problem is we've not shown our kids that most of the people today hadn't earned the right to change America. And what I mean by that, there are people that have died or not given their life up. There are people that have given their life up for this flag. They've given this life up that, for this national anthem. They've given their life up for our freedom and this liberties that we have in this country today, and we're taking it for, for, for granted. Well, I don't want that to happen. And I'm saying, and I'm not being tough, I'm saying, if you know a place better, you go there, but you lose your citizenship here in the United States of America. Tamara, I suspect that, uh, that the base of Herschel Walker's vote is not going to change their mind about hearing things like that. But what is he talking about? I mean, and if you want to try and appeal to young people, telling them that they haven't earned the right to vote is is not the way to do that. And I would not be surprised if if some of that sound ends up in an ad for for uh, Raphael Warnock and and his camp. They've been doing a lot of ads where they just include Herschel Walker's words, and that's all. Um, and those have proven to be pretty effective. So perhaps we can see something like that again. As for his absence from the campaign trail, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes there. He, he did post videos or, or start photos of him. It was his mother's birthday. Um, he went to a remembrance for uh, the former UGA, uh, the late UGA football coach. Um, so I don't blame him for taking time with family during Thanksgiving. At the same time, as we've discussed, this window for voting is so, so, so short. Um, and candidates really need to compress what they're doing. And so any day off the trail is, is time lost and potentially losing potential voters, as we've discussed such tight margins, you can't afford to do that. Audrey, I'm especially thinking about you in this situation, because here you have your applied politics program where everything is pointed toward trying to encourage young people to get involved in a career or at least a period of time in which they work in politics. And I wonder how that comment strikes you and how your students might respond. Well, let me just put it this way. Um, So, for example... When you look at the surrogates who are coming to Georgia for a walker, you got Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz. How appealing are they to young people? 
right? I mean, they're not appealing to middle-aged people, much less young people. And then look who you've got coming for Raphael Warnock. You've got, um, you've got the Dave Matthews Band. You've got President Obama. Um, so, you know, I mean, you've got to put out the effort. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, Herschel Walker is a football star. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who really looked up to Herschel and were actually pretty sad when he got into the race because they didn't know all these things about him. I mean, there's a lot of his history they didn't know, and it just sort of, you know, ruined uh, sort of the legend for them. But, um, you know, he needs to be out there. I mean, when early vote, I mean, when, when real voting gets here, he can't be all over every county in rural Georgia, hyping up the vote, you know, and, and he really needs to be working to get that vote out or, you know, we're not going to see uh, the difference. Again, I think I, I'm going to make a prediction here that I think that, you know, Warnock's organization and activity levels are much higher. And that is something that, you know, uh, they're doing on purpose. Money-wise, too, remember, um, right now, Walker is uh, not raising a lot of money. That suggests that there's sort of a demobilization or, or sort of a flagging of support. We look at those things. And then last thing, from my own research, who's doing all the attacking on the campaign trail? It's Walker. When your polls tell you you're behind, you start going on the attack. And we're seeing, at least in terms of ads, more of that coming from Walker than Warnock. Well. I think Rick Dent would argue just the opposite because he did that on the show yesterday. He would say that the reason that Warnock is continuing to put up those ads uh, going after Herschel Walker for his treatment, his violent behavior toward women, is he realizes he's got to keep stay on the attack there. It is certainly true that on the stump, go ahead. uh, uh, Well, I was going to say, you know, uh, you know, we have there are different types of attacks. So in that case, he's drawing a comparison between himself and experience. You know, he's not calling, you know, Walker Scooby-Doo. He's not making fun of them. It's it's a different kind of attack that's done, Um, you know. Uh, contrasting what your experience is with someone else's, you know, is not really the type of attack, the flailing, you know, Hail Mary. It's a it's a real point. It's a comparison and there's substance to it. But, you know, when you're calling somebody Scooby-Doo, there's no substance to that. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, okay, I would say one other thing, Adrian. Uh, I think Dave Matthews, who you mentioned, who last night did appear at an event for Raphael Warnock, not with his band. It's important to point out he was there as a solo artist. Uh, I, it seems to me that Dave Matthews might appeal, to, in fact, to those 50-year-old voters and above. Yeah. My daughter, my 26-year-old daughter, hardly knows who the heck Dave Matthews <laughs> is. But Adrian, weigh in on this, this notion that if, the more we see from Walker, the less likely it is that swing voters uh, are going to have much faith in him. I absolutely um, of, am of that mind. Um, I'm sorry we don't get to talk, so I have to say about the erection commentary that he made, right, where he made a mistake and said it like twice as opposed to election. And I just feel like if you're going to be on the campaign trail in the last days, yes, yes, if you're going to be on the campaign trail in the last days, then the things have to be persuasive. The real deal about Walker, what he has going for him, is his ability to support the GOP and the Senate. Um, I don't know that they've done a good job of explaining, you know, with the Republican-controlled House, 
how it really will make a difference um, for Warnock to be there as opposed to Walker. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I feel like need to be pushed for GOP voters. But if he's just going to look silly, say something that is not going to further his mission over the next couple of days, um, I believe he should just rest on his laurels and let the election play out. Well, and in fact, maybe to some extent that's happening. But Amy, I do think we should be careful here. Uh, because uh, there's a lot going on under the surface in terms of GOTV effort, get out the vote effort. We know that perhaps one of the most important things Brian Kemp is doing for Herschel Walker, aside from fronting commercials uh, supporting him, is he's lent him the GOTV network that he that Republicans built uh, since 2018 and 2020 when they were overshadowed completely by Democratic get-out-the-vote efforts. That's crucial. And in some ways, that's more important even than the amount of money uh, that uh, Raphael Warnock has as an advantage over Walker, although that's a big deal for the Democrats. But we don't know how that effort is going to play out in the days ahead. So I think we got to be very careful if we think that, that Walker is on the verge of losing this thing. I mean, we don't know. Historically, right, in Georgia, Republicans do better with runoff elections and turnout. And that's actually generally true nationally, but really Georgia's the only one left that sort of has these runoffs, right? But that has been where, and a lot of that has to do with having more voters who make it more of a habit, right, who view it as a duty. They have less newer voters, right? They've got instead that sort of crucial over 50 group that gets them out. But on the flip side, I think where a lot of this is coming in is that mm -hmm. Walker still has to do work to try to convince, right, even Republicans to show up and turn out for him, right? Those 200,000 people who didn't vote in the last election, right, that, that didn't vote in the Senate race and then started voting in the governor's race, right, those are likely Republicans. And he's got to get them out. And the question is, is are these statements going to aid that? Is being quiet and staying out going to aid that? And there's concern. All right, let's do this. Let's go get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. I've got a couple of other issues I'm eager to ask the panel about. Tamar, um, you mentioned briefly the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, op-ed piece the other day, which suggested that um, rather than uh, looking at the governor of Florida, uh, maybe Republicans nationwide should be looking at the governor of Georgia, uh, Brian Kemp, as a potential candidate for president in 2024, based on the fact that he was able to beat the Donald Trump candidate in the primary, based on the fact that he appealed to crossover voters and that sort of thing, uh, which was interesting. And, and the reason I think it's worth commenting on now is that we know that, that Kemp has now launched a PAC uh, uh, that, in fact, will can raise money for other candidates, but also could be used for perhaps the next step of his political career. 
Sure. It, it lets him kind of reach into races around the country, not just in Georgia, and be able to donate there. Um, and as our pal Emma Hurt from Axios reported in that story, potentially that could be used for a um, U.S. Senate run if he wants in 2026 when John Ossoff is on the ballot. Of course, that's a little bit speculative. We don't know what the governor wants to do in, in four years, but certainly this could make him a player on the national stage um, in a way that he hasn't been yet. And so um, clearly he has a bright future. People, um, you know, it was a very convincing win that he had over Stacey Abrams um, earlier this month. And um, it'll be interesting to see where he goes with that, what kind of player he wants to be. Does he does he want to position himself as kind of a, a player kind of in opposition to that MAGA kind of candidate, Donald Trump or whoever kind of replaces him? Does he want to be kind of a more kind of moderate centrist Republican voice? Does he want to be kind of a conservative alternative? It'll be interesting to see where that money goes. Well, that's why, Audrey, it's important that Kemp was quick to uh, step out and criticize Donald Trump for this dinner at Mar-a-Lago. He is positioning himself to some extent, and we'll watch how it unfolds, as an alternative to the uh, MAGA politics uh, of the day. But, Audrey, I want to ask you, because uh, you've uh, had U.S. senators uh, at your your classes. Uh, You you know what that job is like. This notion that Kemp could run for Senate in in uh, two years, when when uh, or in twenty six, when uh, uh, Ossoff's term is up, it strikes me as a little dubious. What we've learned, I think, is that governors don't do very well in the United States Senate. They like to be CEOs of a state. Zell Miller was miserable after two terms as governor when he went up to the U.S. Senate and suddenly found he was just, wait a minute, I'm just one of 100 people who get to vote on issues. It doesn't very well doesn't work out very well a lot of times for governors in the Senate. No, and that's a very good observation, um, Bill. And I would argue that right now the nature of the time is that uh, governors are the ones who are viewed more positively by the public as potential uh, executives in the White House. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that Kemp is doing something. Look, he's very pragmatic um, and he he listens to people and, you know, um, he's been very successful so far. And he's a very deliberative person. The people who know him will tell you that he gets up really early in the morning. He listens to people. He listens to his staff. He, you know, tries to build bridges. But right now, I would say that a lot of the things that he's maneuvering are, are really not only to potentially explore those, but to kind of build his power network in the state of Georgia, much like, you know, the Purdue network that emerged and, um, you know, had so much of an impact. Um, you know, it's very sad that Speaker Lawson passed away. I think he would have um, potentially been a part of that. But, I mean, the Kent people are doing this. They're, they're building their political network right now and sort of solidifying that. And, um, you know, I would not rule out a case for running for the presidency. He would be running in a time where he's got a lot of competitors, but his message may be somewhat different. And he has got that distance from Trump. Look at Nikki Haley. You know, she bent the knee. Mike Pence, even though he's tried to distance himself, he sort of bent the knee. DeSantis is the only one who kind of bent the knee but didn't. You know, and now he's on the outs. You've got some other people who, uh, uh, you know, Ted Cruz. They all have that sort of Trump stain. And, you know, it may be that we're finally seeing 
sort of the the death knell of Trump's influence. It feels like that. Um, so we'll see what's happening. But I think this is an uh, this is a choice for for Kemp, and it, it seems like it's going in that direction for solidifying power and potentially a run. Okay. I, thank you for your comments on that. I don't want to spend too much time moving forward in the weeks ahead talking about what Kemp's next steps are because they're completely <laughs> speculative. But in the days after he formed this new national PAC, um, I do think it's it's worthy of the comments that you made today, and, and I really uh, appreciate that. Um, Adrian, the U.S. Senate is about to codify not just um, same-sex marriage, which um, they're doing largely in response to the fact that there are those who are concerned that overturning Roe, uh, the court could use the same arguments to uh, overturn same-sex the, the uh, law for same-sex marriage. I was a little taken aback to realize that this same bill codifies interracial marriage. I had no idea that we had no protections for that nationally uh, until now. That's shocking to me in a way. I guess I didn't know that either. Um, I think that it's just become pretty standard, especially post-Loving versus Virginia, um, that people understand that interracial marriage exists and will continue to exist uh, versus um, same-sex marriage, which, of course, you know, has had sort of a rocky recent history and then you know, seems under threat now. Um, that's about as much as I have to say there. I guess I'm perpetually stunned and surprised again, looking at Bowers versus Hardwick at how integrated Georgia is in issues of discrimination. <laughs> you know, when I'm teaching about the death penalty, what are we talking about? Georgia. When I'm talking about racism and voting, Georgia. And then I'm looking at this um, case uh, because of you sent the notes last night, and uh, you know it just stuns me sometimes how active we yeah, are yeah. in this regard. Amy, just to remind people, in 1986, uh, the Attorney General of the state of Georgia at that point, Mike Bowers, went to the U.S. Supreme Court arguing that uh, when, uh, I think his name was Kenny Hardwick, but somebody will mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Michael. Hardwick, uh, Michael Hardwick, thank you, was uh, 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 found to be in bed with a man uh, the state said that that was illegal. He, Hardwick himself went to court arguing he has a right under the Constitution to have sex with a partner of his own of his own gender. Uh, the appeals court upheld him, but Bowers took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said it's absolutely right that he that there is no protection for same-sex relations. Um, that was later overturned, but as Adrian points out, you know, here is Georgia in the middle of yet another big controversy back then. Definitely, and part of it, which I do think I'm gonna give a slight history lesson here because it's important, right? It's about how you frame the question. The question the court asked in Bowers v. Hardwick was, is there a fundamental right to homosexual sodomy? When you phrase it that way, clearly uh, the answer is no. Right? The court overturned it in Lawrence v. Texas with a very similar law because they said the question was, is there a fundamental right to make intimate decisions between consenting adults? When you frame it like that, well, yeah, of course there is. Right? And that's the same reasoning that then got extended to Orbrickville. But I think the other side is people do not realize when the Supreme Court issues a decision, that does not necessarily lead then to laws either in states or at the federal level 
to then uh, kind of reaffirm what is put there, right? We sort of just rely on the decision by the court. But one of the things that came out and what a lot of people didn't pay attention to after Dobbs was that, right, Clarence Thomas said, oh, yeah, let's be clear. Our reasoning puts now under, right, and we should go back to these cases. Now, one he left out was Loving v. Virginia, but it also would have to go into that line. But he mentioned Griswold, which is right to contraception, and the other ones. And so that's partly why the we see the Congress acting in this way. I'm glad you clarified the language, because that's really interesting, Amy. Thank you for that. We are completely out of time. We'll talk more tomorrow about what happens today in the United States Senate uh, with this uh, important bill. In the meantime, Amy Steigerwald, Adrian Jones, Audrey Haynes, and Tamar Hellerman, thank you for a wonderful conversation on the show today. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy, everybody. See you all tomorrow.